This is the Holiday 8th Ward Living Histories Podcast, where we record remarkable stories, life events, testimonies, and jokes from the lives of members of the Holiday 8th Ward in Holiday, Utah. As members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we hope these life experiences will unify our ward and encourage everyone listening to let Jesus Christ in your life. All right, today I'm in the home of Josh Holyoke. How are you, Josh? Great. Good. So you're, you're, you're in scrubs. Yes. This is your, your go-to, no shirt and tie for you. <laughs> no. And, and if, if you always want to be a doctor, like when did, where did this life even begin with you deciding, you know what, I'm going to do med school? Actually, I kind of did. Like my um, grandfather was an orthopedic surgeon, and it was always the joke when I was a kid, like, oh, he'll be a doctor someday. And, and then I sort of just absorbed that and actually turned out to really want to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And two of my uncles actually ended up being doctors too. I had opportunities to have very early, probably not, wouldn't be allowed today, but like doctorly experiences. Like I went and followed my uncle around when I was 14 and he was a neurosurgery resident in Mississippi. And I stayed up all night watching horrible, scary surgeries and things. And they told everyone I was a medical student, like that I was the youngest med student in the history of Mississippi. <laughs> and everyone just believed it. Nice. You're the Doogie Hauser. Right? Yeah. I was 14. Nice. That's ridiculous. And, and did you, were you just eating it up at that point? I mean, oh, you just it was loved every minute? Absolutely the coolest thing ever. I've always yeah. thought it was so cool. And so, yeah, to get to follow him around and see actual like medical things was really exciting. Yeah. And is, is it the um, just the fascination of the human body and how it works, the biology of it? I think so. I think the yeah the, that it's so intricate, and the more you learn about it, the more you realize you could never learn it all. I mean, yeah. it's just so complicated and so complex. And our understanding of it in general I, just is constantly changing because you know you do one study and you think, okay, now we know that this is bad for that, and then five years later they'll do another study that completely changes the mind. So. You just realize that it's so fascinating and so much more complicated than we could ever possibly understand. Yeah. So uh, what do you remember for that time when you decided, because you're a urologist, yeah. when you picked the the type of medicine you're going to do, what, anything stand out from that experience? So that was a funny thing, because my grandfather was orthopedics, and so I was going to do that. So um, I, I broke both my arms when I was eight years old, and, and that like cemented how I was like, oh, look how cool those broken arms were on the x-rays, and even though it was terribly <laughs> painful. But uh, so that was the plan, and I actually studied orthopedics. I mean, like I worked for an orthopedic surgeon in college mm-hmm. uh, here in Salt Lake, and that was the plan. And then I got to medical school, and in the third year is when you sort of have to make your decision. And I had done a week of orthopedics and really liked it. But then right afterwards, a friend of mine called and said, oh, you should go try urology. I just finished a rotation, and those guys are really funny, and you'll have a great time. And that was honestly the only reason I did it was it just sounded like a fun time and a break from kind of really stressful rotation on orthopedics. And as soon as I saw the urologist, I was like, these are my people. Wow. They're just they're, – they're mellow. They're, they love gadgets, um, and <laughs> you, you can really tailor your practice. And so you could be someone who does gigantic, huge – you know, belly splitting surgeries or just like really intricate, tiny little things. And, um, I just fell in love. I, and trying to explain that to my grandfather was t- tricky because yeah. he was, he sort of disappointed. Yeah, I think he was, <laughs> he was sort of like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Why would you pick that of all specialties? But yeah, it ended up being just the greatest thing I ever fell into. Uh-huh. So, so, so urology, I'm naive. And I just know that you, you talked about kidney stones when you mm-hmm. spoke in sacrament meetings. So what is urology and, and, 
How would you describe it? Sure. So it's basically the urinary tract, right? So I get called a urinologist quite often, okay. which is, isn't, isn't that far off. Uh, but yeah, so it's kidneys, ureters, bladder, anywhere in the urinary tract and urethra, and then also the male genital tract. So hmm. prostate, testicular cancer, that type of stuff. So um, it's a weird little niche within medicine, and especially because we kind of overlap with other places. So we overlap a little bit with gynecology. We overlap a little bit with nephrology. Mm-hmm. And general surgery. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's the most common things you think of when you think of a urologist are like prostate issues or kidney mm-hmm. stones. Yeah. So how long ago did you finish your residency? 2013. Oh, great. Yeah. So, uh, what was, when you look back at the, the medical school, uh, experience, I mean, I can't even imagine, I, I barely made it through my undergrad, let alone, <laughs> I can't imagine going on, uh, for such intense schooling. Uh, what was that experience like? I think, you know, it's one of those things like if I had to do it again, I just don't know that I could, but the, <laughs> the fact that it was new and you were excited and, and you know, you knew it was going to be really hard sort of made it bearable, but yeah, it was brutal. It, um, I think one of the big blessings I had was that I had studied anatomy for a year at university here in Utah prior to medical school. So everyone like that first semester of med school is always anatomy and people are usually just drowning just by the sheer volume of stuff you're supposed to learn. So I came in with, I felt like an advantage because I had studied advanced anatomy with Dr. Nielsen, Mark Nielsen up at the U, who was awesome. And so for me, that first semester was actually pretty easy. It was just a review of all the stuff we'd already known. But then you get into the pathology and medications and pharmacology and all that stuff, and it's just brutal. Um, So the first couple of years, honestly, are are as hard as they say. It's just like maddeningly difficult, Um, but we survived and the third and fourth year is much more fun. I mean, then you start getting to actually see what doctors do every day. You know, we don't, they don't study textbooks. They are out t- treating patients. So third and fourth year were actually really exciting. And the hardest part about it for me was I kind of liked everything. I actually mm. really liked psychiatry for a while. And I think my wife was nervous that I was going to do that. <laughs> um, but, and like everything I did, I was like, this is cool. And this is cool. So it's, it, it's a, actually an incredible honor and a privilege, I think, to get to go to medical school. And mm. so many people try and get in and, and, and not necessarily get where they want to go or even get to go. And so it really is a privilege yeah. to, to get to learn that kind of stuff. It was amazing. Yeah. You know, I have several friends who I consider brilliant that tried and, and just either didn't get in or couldn't or head a different direction because of it's, it can be intense, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so is it a lot of late nights and, and just lots of memorization, killer tests and things like that. Yeah. So it it is a lot of it is just brute memorization and you'd have, it's like the classic movies where you'd go in there and there would be cadavers everywhere and there would be one little pin stuck in something and you just had to (laughs) say what it was. And sometimes you couldn't even recognize what part of the body it was. Like, I don't know where I am, you know, so it could be really tricky. But the funny thing was my wife was working as an attorney in Washington, DC and I was in med school in Baltimore and so we worked totally different hours. Like she would end up staying really late at the office and then it would take her an hour to get home because traffic's so bad. So I'd be asleep by the time she'd get home and I'd leave really early in the morning and she'd leave late. So we used to sing like strangers in the night to each other because <laughs> we just never saw each other yeah. for like three or four years. Yeah. And I'm sure when you're in that, that stage of life, you just sort of look at each other and say, we'll have a really good marriage maybe later, but just, yeah. just hang with me for now, right? That's right. Yeah. So we nice. took good vacations once a year and then the rest of the time we just knew we were we were in the thick of it. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So you left us hanging with this. You broke both of your arms. Oh, yeah. Tell us that story. <laughs> so I was at Uinta Elementary School here in Salt Lake City. And um, at, uh, what do you call it, recess. And um, I was playing tag. And I was on the monkey bars. 
and I was, they were, this was like back in the eighties when the equipment didn't need to be safe. <laughs> like it, I think it was over cement. I'm pretty sure. And really high up. And I just swung and my hands were sweaty and I slipped and I just landed right with my hands extended and broke both. Oh, just the impact. Is, yep. Wow. And then I hit my face and my nose was bleeding, and actually, I think maybe I'm over dramatizing, but I think I blacked out a little bit. <laughs> Should I embellish here? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, so then, uh, but then I kind of rolled over, and I had that this classic picture of all these kids looking over me, like as I'm laying there on the ground, is he still alive? And and then the other funny thing that I don't think this could happen today is I just left. Like I just in the middle of recess, I just walked home. I didn't tell the teachers, <laughs> didn't tell anybody. I just went home. Did you realize your arms were broken? Oh, I th- I don't think I knew they were broken. I knew something was wrong. I remember the feeling like they were like down to the ground. Like I felt like I had orangutan arms because they were so long. And uh, I just walked home, cried all the way. <laughs> and then my mom. This was kind of a funny thing. No offense to my mom. She's a wonderful woman. But she, she, and she had great intentions. She wanted my grandfather to take care of them because he was an orthopedic surgeon. Yeah, yeah. Well, he lived in St. George. And this was like the middle of the week. And so for some reason we didn't, <laughs> we went to primary, the old primary, and I got splints put on, but they didn't, they didn't set them properly. And, and so, the primary children's, yes. that's not the actual primary Oh no, church, yeah, sorry, yeah. primary children's <laughs> hospital, yeah. <laughs> we did go to, she took me to medical care, not yes, just yes. Like the church, thank goodness. <laughs> uh, but so anyway, so like three or four days later, we drove down to St. George, and my grandfather said, well, he took an x-ray and said, his arms are totally off, or one side was. One side was okay, but he had to re-break one of my arms. Oh. And I remember he said, he kind of tricked me. He said, I can either give you a shot, or we can just fix it. And in my mind, I'm like, well, just fix it. I don't want a shot. <laughs> so there was no pain medication, no anesthesia. And he, my uncles held me down, and he just broke my arm and set it back where it was supposed to be. You remember that pain? I remember that vividly. Oh. Oh. Oh my goodness. My brother imagine. still remembers it. He was younger and he said, I just ran out of the room and heard you screaming. And yeah, it was pretty brutal. And I'm sure your grandfather worked as quickly as he could to yeah. minimize the pain. Right. But, no, I mean, oh. he, he was a great surgeon. Don't get me wrong, but that yeah. was pretty brutal. That's what needed to happen. Yes. Holy smokes. Now they're fixed. Yes. So, how do you describe, um, just give us a, a general snapshot of your childhood? Uh, here in Salt Lake is where you grew up? Yeah, well, we moved around a lot, um, mostly from like my parents' schooling. My dad went to BYU Law School. Hmm. And, um, so we went to, we lived in Provo and Salt Lake and then like he did, um, summer internships and things. So we went to Denver and we went to, um, California and then, uh, he clerked for the DC circuit court. Um, so we lived in DC when I was like three to five and, uh, then we moved back to Utah. Anyway, suffice it to say we moved it a lot of times before, um, before I left for my mission. But yeah, so we, um, home base was mostly Utah and I went to. You went to an East High School, um, and uh, my parents got divorced when I was in fifth grade, so we, I just figured out it was 30 years ago this mm. year. It's kind of crazy to believe. but um, And that was obviously a very traumatic time um, for our family. The strange thing is my mom just moved on the week last weekend, and um, she had some extra stuff that I'm storing for her, and among them were these tapes, like cassette tapes. We used to record all the time, and my mom was really good to, like, on Christmas or Easter, she'd just start a tape recording kind of like this. And mm-hmm. she would just mm-hmm. say, you know, today's February 28th or whatever. And record us talking. And I found this tape. It was like the third one I was listening to. That was two weeks after we moved to Virginia, right after the divorce. And, um, it's pretty wild to hear that. Cause you can hear me. <laughs> it's sort of very, you can analyze it psychologically or whatever, but I'm <laughs> talking to my three-year-old sister uh-huh. and I'm like, you know, how's the move? Has it been really scary? And um, there are all these leading questions, you know, like obviously I, I was scared. Yeah. 
And he's like, do you remember when we got lost in Chicago? And wasn't that horrible? And <laughs> she's three. She's just like, uh, yeah, uh, whatever. Yeah. 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 But, uh, so that was a really traumatic time. Yeah. And um, how old were you at that point? When fifth grade. Stores? So like 11. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're not obviously fully mature, but you're old enough to really be wrestling with some tough stuff in life. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and anything stand out as far as like how did that any way specifically that impacted you? Would you say spiritually or just emotionally or, or I mean, how did you even process that as eleven year old? Yeah, I think a lot of ways. Um, I remember like my grandfather and a few other people said to me like, "You're the man of the house now," and I remember that really hit me hard. Like, okay, I really need to protect my family. Hmm. And so, in some ways, I think I tried to grow up a little bit too fast and. I would. I remember, like living in Virginia, I was really paranoid about the my younger siblings getting lost or or having trouble, and I was just kind of um, you know paranoid is a good word. I just was maniacal about making sure I knew where they were at all times. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I also I feel like I was really blessed with perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the Christmas of nineteen eighty nine um, before we moved out there and. We were sitting, my grandfather would always have these big testimony meetings for Christmas Eve, and we actually hated it <laughs> because uh-huh. we, it was, they were Norwegian and were like, they followed the Norwegian tradition of opening Christmas Eve presents, presents on Christmas Eve. But we couldn't open them until after this really, really long <laughs> testimony meeting where everyone had to talk. Yeah. And, and so it was just miserable. So we're, you know, as kids, you just, you just want your presents. But I remember feeling at that point this like very strong, it was at a super emotional time. Everyone was crying because, like, our family was breaking up, and and all our uncles were trying, and aunts were trying to, you know, support us. And but I, I just remember I said, like, this is just a blip in the road. You know, we're we're going to get through this. We need to look at the long view. And I think I said something like, the big picture is what's important. And just remember that, you know, wow. for an eleven year old, that's yeah, pretty profound. Yeah, I felt like I mean, I still feel like that was obviously Heavenly Father a gift, just yeah. to have that perspective that. Let's not, you know, focus on this horrible moment. Let's just realize that life's going to be better. And um, and so that really, I think, the interesting thing, too, was even though moving to Virginia, I think, was so stressful for me as a kid, not just moving, but like, you know, leaving my dad behind and leaving all my friends behind, um, but, you know, just totally different surroundings. Um, but in looking back, we lived there for three years and then moved back to Utah because my grandparents' health was failing, but... That, that ended up being such a formative time for me. And it was so important. I think I think I would have been a completely different person if I had just coasted through life, you know, like yeah. I had up to that point. Everything was just pretty easy. School was easy. And I had tons of friends and life was wonderful. Um, but moving to Virginia, I really had to reset and start over, make new friends. And suddenly I was like one of three or four members of the church in my whole school. Mm. And it just helped me realize kind of how much more important it was to me. I remember like, you know, I had to ride my bike to church and it was pretty far away. It was like a 20 minute bike ride. And I was a deacon. I remember I had, I was responsible for bringing the bread. And so I would like, I feel this huge responsibility to leave early and ride my bike to church. And like those kinds of things really help cement a testimony because you're kind of like, I don't know, you, you, you've invested these things into it and you start to wonder like, wait a minute, (laughs) do I really believe this? You know, I'm going to put forth all this effort and, and obviously you do. And so it, I don't know, it, I'm really, I realized it was like probably the hardest time of my, one of the hardest times of my life, but it also, you know, helped me grow like nothing else could have. Yeah. You were kind of forced to grow up a little bit faster than uh, many typical 11 year olds, but, uh, and that could maybe be a negative thing for some 11 year olds, but it seems like it really, regardless of why it happened or, um, 
how it happened, it it was more of a positive, would you say, than a, than a negative as far as your development? Yes, absolutely. If you if you read my journals from the time, I, I seemed pretty miserable, and I think I probably was in a lot of ways. But like even two or three years after we got back to Utah, I already had the realization like, oh my gosh, that was really good for me. Hmm. Like I don't think I would have learned any of those lessons that I learned, obviously, if I hadn't been stretched that way. So, and now, you know, with hindsight of whatever, 30 years, it's, it's, it was such a huge part of my life to have been through that. So how would you describe, you know, you mentioned that sort of, that impacted your personal faith development. Mm. Um, what, 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 how else would you describe outside of that, you know, progressing from the time that your, your parents split up and, and how, how did your faith form and, and what did that look like? Sure. Um, I think a big part of it, I think I really took things for granted living here in Salt Lake. And when I was in Virginia and suddenly, you know, one of a few members of the church, it helped me kind of cement what I felt about it. Um, Because, you know, friends would want to know why on earth we behaved the way we did or why we didn't do certain things. And so that was really helpful. And I remember certain really powerful experiences that were like the kind of tentpole things. Like I went to EFY. Um, at William and Mary College, College of William and Mary, um, when I was, I don't know, 15 or something, and just had a very powerful spiritual experience there. Hmm. Um, I actually remember our <laughs> our leader, who was kind of a goofball, um, he made us do some sing and dance thing from Greece, the movie Greece, and I hated that movie. <laughs> very spiritual movie. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, my sisters and my mom always watched that crappy movie, and I didn't want to have anything to do with it. But anyway, that's not the point. The point was that, um, like, the night before we went home, he did this thing where he went around and, like, shined all of our shoes. Hmm. And it was, he said, you know, I just want you to think about the story of the Savior when he washed his disciples' feet. And he wasn't trying to, you know, put himself in anyone's shoes, but sort of to see that idea of the service of someone. And for just a moment, I kind of could picture that night of the Savior uh, doing that for his disciples, and it was very powerful. Hmm. And we all went around and, and bore testimony, and, and I just remember that night, like, I really realized that my testimony of the of the Savior was, like, um, bulletproof. Hmm. I still feel like that. There, there may be some things in my life where I'm, I'm not 100% on, or, or I sometimes struggle, but my testimony of the Savior from that moment on, and probably before that, has just been... Real, it's a huge blessing to me that I, I complete. I never doubt my testimony of the Savior. Yeah, um, and so I feel like that was really formative. Um, trying to think of any other major, and then obviously things that happened later, like on my mission and things that mm-hmm. became super important. But that was the early on type thing. So from those experiences as a youth, that springboard into your mission pretty easily. I mean, was that a, something that you are always expected to do? Uh, it was, but I did have. I had kind of a rebellious period, you know, like mid teenage years where church wasn't as important to me, or I just sort of let it go by the wayside. Uh And I think it had to do a lot with, you know, being an idiot, rebellious teenager, but life was also kind of, you know, hard and difficult at night. But at some point, um, I remember after, I don't know how long I had gone without going to church. I just didn't think about it. You know, I just sort of blocked it out of my head. Like I just didn't want that part of my life. And then, um, I had a friend her name was Lindsay Krantz, and she, she and I were just hanging out one night, and she started to challenge me on why I didn't go to church. Um, just, just really, not in a judgmental way, just in a, 
a very loving, charitable way. Just like, well, why don't you? You know, like, just tell me what is your thought process. And it, part of it helped me realize that well, I didn't really have a thought process. I was just rebelling against everything. <laughs> and um, the other, the strange thing is, I don't remember exactly what she said to me, but that night just is like burned into my memory because it was the first time where someone really challenged me. Not just like you need to be doing this, you should be doing this, but allowed me to think for myself, why am I not doing this? Hmm. You know, not just being told what to do, but being asked, you know, don't you want to do this or why don't you want to do this? And, um, the thing is I haven't really, I've never talked to her again since high school and I, I hope she listens to this someday, but like (laughs) she, I mean, that was such a huge part of my life because it changed my perspective. And the other strange thing that happened was, um, at the time, I was really into like '60s and '70s rock. I would kind of, <laughs> I was in a band, and like so, I loved Led Zeppelin and all this <laughs> stuff. And I feel like I, I'll tell this experience sometimes to to younger kids that I feel like Heavenly Father and the Holy Ghost will find you. It's a lot easier for Him to find you when you're living in holy places, but even when you're not, He will find a way to communicate yeah, to you wherever you're at. Right? Yes. Yeah. And so there was that line in that Stairway to Heaven where it says, <laughs> "I know it sounds silly, but." It really meant a lot to me at the time. It was, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. Hmm. And it still gives me chills, actually, because I feel like I, I wasn't going to church. I wasn't reading my scriptures. I wasn't praying. There was no way. I wasn't doing anything to bring myself closer to Heavenly Father. So he found that way of saying, hello, you know, yeah. you just, where are you going? Because I had planned on a mission my whole life, and I had always been really faithful, I thought. And I just, just kind of fell. And so... Fortunately, that was a turning point, and I think you know, sixteen, seventeen, started going back to church, and then had a really great bishop just prior to my mission who really made it a priority, and and yeah, fortunately went. It was life changing. And the call came, and yeah, and where were you called? So Bordeaux, France. Nice. Which is uh, you're supposed to say Bordeaux. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, my wife and I. That's how we met. Actually, is we, I was in the University of Utah bookstore, and. Um, this girl was in front of me telling some guy, Oh, I just got my mission call. I'm going to Bordeaux, France on December 17th. And that was exactly my call same day and everything. So I just tapped her on the shoulder. And I was like, hi, I, that's my same mission call. And, like, oh, oh, right. and that was my wife. But, oh my goodness. Yeah. So never would have known. Pretty funny. So you were in the same MTC district then, um, since you went in the we same day? We actually weren't. We oh, went well. in the same day, but we were in two different districts. So, um, probably better that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, but we were just sort of acquaintances throughout the whole mission. We were never in the same city or anything. But yeah, um, yeah. So I went to Bordeaux, France, in '97, end of '97 to '99, and uh, that was, uh, you know, like just like you'd hope, it was a huge spiritual experience, and millions of things happened. But yeah, and and my uh, my brother was actually in the Belgian Brussels mission about, oh. about that same time. Uh, speak, but he was in France the whole time, and I know. Uh, you know, it, it's not like going to Guatemala with a lot of baptisms. So, what yeah. was it? Do you, was it a difficult mission? Um, I mean, difficult in the sense that, uh, yeah, I, I think we found ourselves trying to get really creative to try and hmm. do new things because knocking on doors is pointless in <laughs> yeah. France. It is just a waste of time. Um, and so, like our mission president would try, like we would do musicals and they would tour around or they would do surveys or we would give out pictures of the savior or all sorts of just really creative ways to try and break it up because yeah that that community and that that group of people they just first of all they're very cautious about 
outsiders anyway, which I guess is probably true of most societies. But, sure, yeah. But France, France, like this one thing is very symbolic to me. You cannot get up to a French person's front door. Nobody can. Uh-huh. There's a gate, you know, usually 20, 30, 40 feet away with a bell, and you ring that bell, and only then will they answer the door, and then you're still 50 feet away. Yeah. So a lot of times when you're knocking on doors, you're really like, you know, way far away and like, excuse me, would you mind listening? And then, you know, yeah. they just slam the door. So that just, you know, they're just very protective. And obviously, if you think of their history, they have reason to be afraid of outsiders or, sure, yeah. or cautious at least. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, the, the French people are incredible. And we, we actually got to go back a few years ago after the temple was being finished. And I mean, that was the coolest thing in the world to see that. Because as a missionary, I'm sure you know that you just pray and pray and pray that yeah. someday there would be enough faith or mission or members to have that happen. So to see that is super cool. Nice. Really exciting. Nice. So when, uh, after you come over your mission, when did, uh, the, you and your wife begin to uh, not just be old mission buddies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, actually, I should. She would correct me. We, we weren't buddies. In fact, I'm not <laughs> sure we were friends because I was in the mission office, and my job was to. So, phone calls at the time were extremely expensive, even local phone calls. Mm-hmm. So, we were all very limited. And if you called outside your area, the mission rule that was against the rules, and we would triple your fee and take it out of your. MSF, your monthly whatever fund. Oh, wow. And so my job was to go through everybody's phone bills and highlight the phone calls. I don't know how I knew, but somehow we could tell that they were outside of their area and <laughs> tally it up and then take their money out. And Melissa, my wife, I'm sure she was mortified of me sharing this. She was the number one in the mission. Like, <laughs> and I say now to cover myself like this because she was just so sociable and she had all these friends that she didn't want to say goodbye to. And, that, and it's true. Yeah. But anyways, she was by far the worst. She had had like a phone book of of records that I had to <laughs> highlight. And so the <laughs> she got called into the mission president's office because she literally was not going to receive any money that month. She had spent it all on, on phone, calls. phone calls. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, but I'm going to get in trouble for saying all this. Oh, all right. well, but anyway, funny. so yeah, so she, she, we weren't exactly like best buddies on the mission, but afterwards, yeah, pretty quickly after I got home, she, um, did I call her? I think we would argue that I think she called me, but she says I called her, but anyway, whatever she says is right. <laughs> and uh, we, we, the funny thing was, was we decided we would just hang out one night. And to, to say how much we didn't think it was romantic, Melissa asked her mom for money because she didn't think I would be paying. Uh-huh. So she asked her mom for just 20 bucks or whatever because we were going out to dinner. But we ended, it ended up being a date because, uh, anyway, without getting too sappy. I mean... I, <laughs> Please get sappy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, she, she looked very different to me. I think maybe Heavenly Father protected me on my mission and helped me focus, but I just didn't see her that way. Yeah, sure. But afterwards, I mean, she had this, like, long blonde hair, and and she looked totally different to me. I was like, wow. You know, and I just was struck by, how did I miss this girl? Yeah. And uh, we had a, a really fun first date. And then, actually, I'll tell you, um, I'll get really sappy. I, I fell in love with her on our second date. First date was just fun, and but second date I fell in love because she was in some sort of institute, like University of Utah Institute singers. It was really cheesy. They, they had to wear like these gold sparkly outfits. And um, we, I, I, she said, do you want to come see me play piano for this group? And I was like, sure. So we went. And at first I was sort of embarrassed for her because they looked like goofballs. But So she was playing piano, and they were singing all these silly songs. And uh, I play piano too, but um, while she was playing, she made a mistake. And she laughed. She had this like huge smile, laughed, kept playing, didn't make a big deal out of it. 
And I just, that was so the opposite of my style and my family. Like when we made mistakes in piano, we were mortified and you stopped and, you know, you totally just made the, made it worse. And I loved that about her that she just was like, okay, not a big deal. And just laughed through it and pushed through and became very symbolic for how, who she is as a person. She takes the, this sign right over here is, is in French, but it's like, that's her life. It's, it says, please think about smiling because we're not responsible for the face that we have but we are responsible for the faces we make. Oh, nice. So um, that's, that's her to a T. She just makes lemons, out, or no, wait, makes lemonade out of lemons. Yeah, yeah. She's a very positive person. Nice. And so that, that was the clincher for yeah, her. Yeah, I was like, okay, this girl's awesome. Nice. And then, then she said, I'm going to law school. And I was like, okay, sold. <laughs> she can pay my way through med school. <laughs> nice. So how long after that until you were wed? Very quickly. So my parents were horrified. We uh, were engaged <laughs> two months after our first date and married four months after that. Nice. June 9th, 2000. Nice. And uh, here you are today. Coming up on 19 years. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Yeah. And uh, how many kids do you have now? Four. Nice. And we're all done. You're all done. Yes. <laughs> Four and done. <laughs> oh, sounds like you're halfway there, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, well, that's fantastic. So how, how would you describe, I mean, you do you feel like life's kind of slowed down a little bit now that you're you're in your, your practice, you're, you're doing your doctor thing and, and life is good? Yeah, I mean, especially like if you asked me this a year ago, we were in cruise control. In, in, we lived in Missouri, and I had a cushy job, and I'd been doing it for five years, so there was very little stress involved because it was, you know, you kind of knew what to expect each day. And we had a great home and great family and community and ward and everything, so we were really coasting. And it's great. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and then this job opened up here in Salt Lake, and all of our families here, except for one of her sisters. I mean, literally everybody else is here. And including my brother and sister who are like, you could hit a golf ball and hit their house maybe. Um, but anyway, so it was a big decision for us to leave this place where we were so rooted and happy and comfortable. Mm-hmm. And granted, it was to come be closer to family, which was a huge draw, but it was kind of scary for us. We were worried about what it would do to the kids. And and honestly, I was very cognizant of the fact that this was the age I was when I moved to make my oh, kids yeah. move at that same age. Um, but... I think it's come, I mean, it's become pretty obvious that it wasn't just the move that was stressful. It was my parents breaking up and, you know, that, yeah. that was the major stressor. So, like, I just said to my wife, like, well, as long as we stay together, <laughs> I think they can handle the move. And they've done really, really well. Yeah. So, so, yes and no. I mean, yes, we're, it still is very cushy compared to med school and residency and all that. But um, it is a big adjustment now, kind of starting over a new job and mm-hmm. new situation. But it, so far, it's gone great i can't complain so was it sparked by a spiritual impression that came out of nowhere or what what was the impetus for for moving back to utah um it was pretty strange i mean i you get um advertisements all the time um saying you know hey come work in anchorage you know or, or come work in southeast they usually don't say exactly where they'll say like a southeastern metro or, or something like that and then they tantalize you with some huge amount of money <laughs> and you know those are always fun just to peruse and any anytime there would be one that was utah i just would pay extra attention we actually interviewed for a job in Logan before we took the job in Missouri and almost moved there. But anyway, so this one up from Utah, they're almost never advertised jobs in Salt Lake because they don't need to, you know, like there's so many people who want to live here that you almost never need to advertise. So that was really caught me by surprise. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was sort of like a, one of those things that sort of snowballed out of control before we knew to stop it. I mean, 
I was like, gosh, should we call them and see what this job's about? And she was like, sure. And then suddenly it was like, gosh, should we fly out for the interview? And then three seconds later it was like, gosh, should we take this job? Oh, wow. So it sort of felt like it, it was just ready made. Uh-huh. Um, and I did, a, um, without getting into too much of the detail, there was a, a physician who had this job who was injured hmm. and can't practice anymore. And so part of me was, I felt guilty. Like, I feel like I'm taking this man's job. You know, he had this great practice and now he can't practice. And I felt like, geez, I feel terrible taking over for someone. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's a huge blessing and opportunity for our family. And so I don't want to, I don't know. I just can't see it that way. And and Mm -hmm. hopefully that man will recover and do fine. But anyway, so it's, it's been really weird, really interesting time for our family, but, but it's exciting. It's great being, this close to family and, and friends and everything from high school. And we've gotten to reconnect and oh, that's great. The, two weeks ago, my dad was sitting on the piano bench with my daughter and they were singing together and playing. And I was like, okay, this is why we're here. You know, <laughs> yeah, this like is a snapshot kind of, moment. Yeah. Absolutely. This wow. is the activity, you know, so you'll be around a while. Yeah. I, I don't ever want to move again. Good. We well, said that last time, but <laughs> I really yeah. don't. Yeah. I hate moving. Well, good place to settle down for sure. Yeah. All right, so my uh, we you you've got a whole life history book in you. I'm sure you need to sit down and write this out sometime. From yeah. from broken arms to uh, to <laughs> med school to everything. So um, let's say um, we we hop in a DeLorean and go a hundred years in the future, and you you just have a few minutes to talk to all your posterity. What what advice or message or testimony would would you want them to know and, and leave them with? Hmm. So. I guess I would say the basics are what's so important and it's honestly what I struggle with, but it's daily prayer, daily scripture study. I feel like, I mean, I don't know what it's going to be like in a hundred years, but at this point I feel like the world is this rushing tide against us every day. Like if you don't fight to have a testimony and to stay close to heavenly father, the world will push you away within a day. And even literally one day of, of really not praying or thinking about Heavenly Father or reading the scriptures, and you will find yourself downstream um, farther from, from where you wanted to be. So uh, I, I just feel really strongly that it's a daily effort to recommit yourself. And I've actually always I've struggled to put this into words, and I've tried to before in talks and things, but I feel like Heavenly Father gave us this great challenge and great gift of the 24-hour cycle. Uh, like this sleep-wake cycle. Because if you think about it, like that didn't have to be part of the plan. Mm. Why do we have to sleep? In fact, we don't really know why. You know, a, yeah. a lot of it's like sort of bizarre. We don't understand why we have to sleep. But anyway, um, I feel like it's this incredible blessing because if you have a bad day, you always get to go to sleep and wake up and start over. You start fresh. You sort of, you have that time out to mm. say, oh my gosh, what did I do that for? I'm an idiot or I wasn't, you know, I wish I hadn't said that or whatever. And so you get to reassess before you've let yourself just, you know, if you just had one continuous period of life for 15 days, you might just really make lots of mistakes. But at the same time, the other side of that coin is it's a challenge. I mean, you might have made great strides yesterday and then you wake up today and you, you've got a crick in your neck or you're hungry or whatever. And then you make a bunch of mistakes. And so you, you can't really get on much of a roll either. I mean, in some ways, you just really have to check check yourself before you wreck yourself <laughs> as the great philosopher once said <laughs> you really have to uh you know be cautious about that daily cycle i think it's a huge blessing um i don't know if that made any sense at all but my brain thinks about it a lot the cycles of life and 
So I would tell my posterity that um, be cautious about that and take advantage of the daily opportunity to restart. And, you know, the same sort of idea of the weekly sacrament, right? That's that. I don't know about you, but every single Sunday when the bread and water comes around, I always think, well, I didn't really live up to what I was supposed to do this week. It's just this constant battle of, well, I guess that's probably true for everyone. I mean, otherwise we'd be perfect, right? But what a blessing to have that opportunity to assess ourselves and make the adjustments that we need to. I think the biggest, so I, um, today I heard these people at my job who shall remain nameless talking about signs and um, little things they see in their life, like that they see as meaning something or, you know, like the color of some leaf on the ground. And, and someone was saying, Oh, well, the Brown is supposed to mean this and gray means that. And I just realized that as humans, we are searching for meaning and sometimes we'll find it, you know, maybe where it really isn't, but we, we really want guidance and meaning in our lives and they were saying it in the sen- in the setting of oh someone who had just passed away and they were hoping that these were signs that they were trying to sen- send them, and it made me realize how grateful I am for the knowledge of the gospel and how revelation is received and how we can search it out and and we don't have to guess we don't have to rely on someone else's weird quirky beliefs we can get it from the source we can pray and have guidance every day and have that confirmation of the Holy Ghost. Um, and that was one of the things that was like the greatest thing on Sunday when Henry bore his testimony, which shocked me that he went up there, but he, he, it was all about how he felt the spirit that one time. And, you know, if, if you could, if I could wish anything for my kids, it's to know and recognize the spirit when you're feeling it. I mean, that's like the most wonderful gift ever. 